welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, where we explore how to center our lives and our leadership in the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. In the midst of the disruptive cultural shockwaves of the 21st century. Join us as we learn to take the love of God seriously as the force that holds all of us and everything together. Well, you found us again. You did right it. where you, you left us. Me. Yep. Right here this in your is podcast feed. The Gravity Leadership Podcast. I'm, as always, joined by Ben Sternke. Good day. Yes. Good day to you. Yeah. Good, sir. Good, sir. You had, you had a good day? Your, your allergies have been acting up, Ben. <clears throat> yes. As we were recording this, <laughs> I have been coughing and sniffling. That was uh, the most. Quite a bit. <laughs> Just to sort of uh, prove to the listener that what you said was true, I will demonstrate how my throat sounds. Yeah. Anyway, I had to mute a lot. Uh, we recorded a podcast episode earlier today, and I also had two cohorts today. So I've been talking a lot, and yeah. um, I've had to mute quite a bit to just do like sniffles you've and coughs. A, I wonder if this is all the punk music you sang as a high school kid, because you've got a very mm, uh, delicate instrument there. Yeah, <clears throat> I get hoarse You easily. get hoarse easily. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And sometimes when we're like, we sometimes we lead workshops, uh, which you can learn more about at gravityshow.com backslash workshops, you tend to... Uh, you tend to look at me with desperate eyes, like I can't project any louder than this, and I don't know how to don't help need you. Microphones, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I was, you know, when I was a worship pastor, there was a somebody um, trying to teach me how to breathe when I sing. So I don't, I don't think I breathe well when I sing. I was not. I'm not a trained singer. Yeah, and I was a punk rock singer. Um, so I think that's that might be part of it. I might so need to learn how to breathe. I'm trying to teach my daughter, my 11-year-old, how to breathe because she's in a show and she has to sing a solo and it's a difficult solo to sing yeah. and she thinks I'm crazy. She thinks that she thinks that I'm I'm lying to her and trolling <laughs> her by telling her that she has to learn how to breathe into her belly. So she won't even listen to me. <laughs> That's incredible. Dude, uh, I made money as yeah. a singer <laughs> at one point in my life and my 11-year-old daughter is too mm-hmm. good for me. Yeah. I well, don't know what you're talking about. Old, dear old dad. So. Let's see what Nathan has to say about that. Uh, he yes. doesn't talk about that at all. Actually, yes. we turn towards uh, what does the church have to say or do uh, about all the all the first three parts of what we listen to, and what yeah. what do we how do we respond as yeah. the people of God to um, yeah generational sin? Yeah. What, what do we do? Yeah. What do we do? As yeah. What does it mean for us to respond to? Um, yeah, the racism, the white supremacy that critical yeah. race theory reveals. Yeah. Why does it matter for the church? Yeah, so and it does. So It does matter. It, it matters a lot. And so we get into that in this episode. Uh, this is the fourth and final part of our rebroadcast of our um, episodes with Dr. Nathan Cartagena on critical race theory that we um, originally recorded two years ago in May of 2021. When that was all the rage. If you mm-hmm. haven't listened to the first three parts, we would highly encourage it. But if you only have time for this part, uh, you'll probably get a lot out of it anyway. So yeah. you can do what you want. You're an adult. Well, you have Ben's permission, everybody, which is yeah. probably all you wanted out of your day. Yeah. Not even my permission. Just just an encouragement. Just a reminder. You're an adult. You can make your own decisions. Okay. Do what you want. Well, decide to keep listening and you'll hear Nathan Cartagena spin it. Mm-hmm.
Nathan, welcome back to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Thank you. It's a joy to be with you all again. Yes, Dr. Nathan Luis Cartagena joins us again part in part one of our conversation. He uh, laid out a bit about what critical race theory is, just uh, some broad contours. Uh, part two and three was a history of how uh, racism and whiteness was legislated and uh, ensconced in the laws and decisions of the courts in our country. Now in part four, we're going to chat about uh, why, why is there such a kerfuffle about critical race theory? And, and what, is it, what is it for? What, what are the maybe uh, dangers we need to look out for? And what uh, is some of the helpful work it could be doing? Yeah, Nathan? Yep, sounds good. <laughs> Great. Um, so here's a question that comes up uh, often. Um, I hear that critical race theory has its originations in Marxism. And everybody knows that Marxism is godless and anti-American, right? And so uh, we shouldn't use critical race theory because of its godless, anti-American origins. This is one of the criticisms we hear. Um, how, how does that criticism strike you? How would you respond to that? It's a great question. Uh, so here... We're gonna. I want to remind the audience what I take to be CRT proper, and then I'll, and I'll respond just perfect, to make sure everybody's perfect. on the same page. So first, remember that for me, I'm working with the definition that critical race theory proper, not its derivative sense and not its extended cultural war sense, is a legal movement aimed at understanding, resisting, and remediating how U.S. law and legal institutions such as law schools have fostered and perpetuated racism and white supremacy. Um, I think... One of the reasons it's so important to give a definition of what we mean by CRT is it would be similarly important to give a definition of what we mean by Marxism. So, for example, there's not one school of Marxism. Marx's views change pretty dramatically through the course of his life. And then what it means for somebody like Lenin, for example, or Stalin to take up Marxism is, is quite different. And then what people often are going to be thinking about is a connection from Marx slash Marxism to what's known as critical theory, which is uh, connected to what, what's known as the Frankfurt School. So you have a number of uh, German Jews after World War II trying to make sense of the racial quagmire mm. that was the Nazi party. And um, they are, on the one hand, drawing ideas from Marx, on the other hand, challenging and, and rejecting certain Marx, uh, Marx ideas. So, and, and that makes plenty of sense because Marx was not really doing much to center um, any reflections on, on, on race. And so one of the questions that, that folks in the Frankfurt School, for example, are going to have is like, how do we make sense of some of the class dynamics, but also some of the race dynamics, etc. Now, I note that because for the CRT connection, it is true that a lot of CRT scholars are going to have been trained in what's known as critical legal studies. And this is a branch of legal studies that draws on ideas from Marx, from the Frankfurt School, but that challenges both, challenges both. And, and often what you find, uh, the CLS folks saying is Marx's view of law is it, it's it's too it's he has what's known as instrumentalist view that this isn't going to work it doesn't account for the situatedness of law it's too reductive it's too essentialist and so they, they say a number of things like that and so even the CLS folks uh, the critical legal studies folks they're they're distancing themselves from Marx they're saying no no we don't endorse what they'll call vulgar Marxism 
So they don't they don't endorse Marx proper, you might say, classic Marxism. But one of the things that happens, I believe we discussed this briefly in the first podcast, is critical race theorists like Kimberly Crenshaw, Mary Matsuda, Charles Lawrence III, Richard Delgado, and Robert A. Williams uh, Jr. of, of the Lumbee tribe, they, though they, they're familiar with CLS, they're saying, well, you all aren't accounting for race. And in fact, when you are not only failing to account for race, but your vision of rights because of how you're thinking through things from a Marxist lens, you're like, oh, this is really only going, rights are only going to work to perpetuate uh, mass forms of delusion and continued forms of oppression, et cetera. But, but all these people are saying, well, actually, in the histories of racialized minority communities, rights rhetoric is really important. And it, one of the reasons it's so important is it helps us to resist these tremendous pressures that are coming from white supremacy throughout the histories that we, that we discussed in parts two and parts three. So what you're finding with people like Crenshaw, and, and say mm -hmm. Williams is a very intricate dance with CLS, with some aspects of the Frankfurt School, where they'd say, kind of like what you see medievals do with Aristotle, okay, mm -hmm. these things we definitely endorse. Or if you want to go further back than medievals, think about the early church with the way that they interact with the Stoics and how important Stoic philosophy ends up being for the construction of the creeds. It's not like it's just a wholesale exception accepting of stoicism yeah. but no okay hold on let's think through these metaphysical categories how do they apply to what we see in the scriptures etc it's a similar sort of thing going on with 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 critical race theorists but there's a constant resistance of what you might think of as a as a holistic uh marxist conception and i think for some some in your audience uh it's important to, to note that for them to hear the words for example oppression or oppressed or the oppressor is to them just to be talking in a Marxist register. And, and they don't realize that these are actually also biblical categories, for example, or that many people were talking about problems with oppression way before Marx came on the scene. And many people will in fact argue, as you see some of these critical race theorists do, that Marx can't account for certain modes of oppression because he only wants to, he wants to center class analysis. He doesn't really have any room for thinking about race and how modes of white supremacy come up. Now, I want to highlight that things actually get even a little bit more confusing, and are, are, there are needs for, for greater levels of, of nuance, because as you'll recall from part one, I stress that many CRT scholars are connected to decolonial movements. Mm -hmm. So somebody like Richard Delgado is connected in part to the Chicano-Chicano movement, which is also known as the Brown movement, which is an effort to resist the, the modes of white supremacy that have been ravaging Chicano and Chicano communities. Somebody like Robert A. Williams, he's connected to what's known as the Red Power Movement, which is an effort at thinking through decolonial realities as they relate to indigenous communities. And then somebody like Derek Bell or Kimberly Crenshaw, but certainly more Derek Bell, is, is going to be connected to the Black Power Movement and thinking about how do we decolonialize the, the modes of anti-Black racism that are suffusing white supremacy. Now, I want to stick with Bell for just a moment because Bell is, is known for saying, I never, I never studied Marx. I didn't think it was important that I study Marx. I'm instead studying people like W.E.B. Du Bois because Bell identifies with what's known as the black radical tradition. So Bell isn't, he's not spending time with the Frankfurt School. Frankly, a lot of Bell's work, it doesn't even do much with critical legal studies because he's doing a number of his things before critical legal studies becomes more popular in places like Harvard and, and, and Wisconsin. Hmm. Uh, he is going to deal with critiques of certain what are known as formless views of law that, that fail to account for how law is a, is a socially situated reality that will reflect, as it were, the broader society while also shaping the broader society. 
but but Bell is, is he's thinking with people like Thurgood Marshall. He's thinking with people like like Baldwin. He's thinking with people like Du Bois. But it's important to say, okay, though he's not doing a lot to prime in terms of like his engagement with primary Marx texts, you certainly find that somebody like Du Bois is critiquing Marx. He reads Marx carefully and says, nope, here are devastating shortcomings in Marx. Hmm. Now that's the sort of thing that that Bell's going to receive and and he's going to inherit and it's going to shape how he's thinking so he's thinking about material conditions but in terms of reflections of somebody like Du Bois not proper like not not most directly somebody like Marx so I'm saying this because for some in the audience they're going to hear people say well the moment you can find any kind of connection to Marx is the moment you can blow the whole thing up like that's the moment you don't need to you don't need to pay attention to it anymore (laughs) But I, I wanted to give this kind of example of, of the derivative connections in a way that's like holds with Bell, where he's going to say, well, I, I'm not reading Marx proper. I'm not really reading the Frankfurt School. That's different than somebody like Crenshaw or or or, um, or Williams, in part because there has to come a point where we realize that folks like Marx and Durkheim, for example, because they're so influential in the launching of sociology, even though sociologists are consistently resisting and extending and critiquing initial insights from people like 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 Marx and, and Durkheim, those that are going to be paying attention to broader research in social science, broader, especially sociology, but also anthropology and in history, they just are going to be dealing with people who are in complex ways accepting certain Marxist ideas and rejecting certain mm-hmm. Marxist ideas. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to highlight that because critical race theories are interdisciplinary, or in fact, what, what Cornell West calls de-disciplinized. So one of the great challenges that comes with work, with working in CRT is you just have to know so much and you have to be reading so widely because in any given essay, it's like, well, here's all this stuff in history. Then here's mm-hmm. all this stuff in legal studies. Okay, now here's this stuff in psychology. Here's the stuff in theology. Here's the yeah. stuff in philosophy. Yeah. Here's the stuff in sociology. And it's like, oh, my goodness. Oh, oh and now we're into decolonial literature. And they're bringing it all together because they're trying to help us understand the the things that influence law and then the ways that laws – Go and govern various parts of human life. So they're thinking, of course, we're going to pay attention to a broad swath of things. And now a word from a sponsor. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, let's get back into our conversation. Nathan, you hit it on the head where you it's, it's complicated. There's a yes. lot that yeah. is involved in it. It's not just studying one thing, right? I feel like my mind's about to like blow up because I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute. Um... I need I need you to double click on something for me yes. because I'm wondering if if our listeners are a little bit like me where I'm like okay I know that critical race theory really it it seems as though it polarizes um you know the two, into people into two groups the oppressor and the oppressed right but I know it's more complicated than that and yep. so can you just double click and help us kind of give us a little bit more on that yeah this is a great question so let me let me explain how Somebody like Bell would think about this, and then we'll work to Crenshaw, and, and you'll see why we'll go to Crenshaw. Bell, Bell's going to talk about the ways in which law subordinates groups. 
So he'll he'll most frequently talk about subordination rather than oppressed. He'll talk about those that are subordinated and those that are doing the subordination. Like so, okay. for instance, then like the laws of uh, the U.S. that denied sovereignty rights to native persons. It. Exactly right. Yes, and so he's going to say clearly the law has subordinated them, and and you think about, for example, Puerto Rico. Think about the insular cases. The, the U.S. doesn't grant citizenship to to Puerto Rico. For a long time. And then even once it grants citizenship to Puerto Rico, you don't have all the rights that come with citizenship. Right. You, it, the only way you can have voting rights, for example, is to move from the island to the mainland. Hmm. And the, these ideas, the, the patterns of determining who was going to be able to vote and so forth were connected to white supremacist ideas that were connected to fears about assimilation, etc. So Bell could look at a case like that and see, okay, look, we have a vision of the United States as this Anglo-Saxon empire. It acquires these non-white peoples and it's doing stuff it's doing all of this work to keep them at bay while also being able to exploit the relationship so make it a tax a, you know a tax haven for, for certain corporations for 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 certain pharmaceutical groups etc so so bell's gonna say look in terms of the legal standing they, they don't they have taxation without representation that's a clear presentation of subordination and it's a clear presentation now to switch into another category of exploitation and then yet another category oppression and it's all shot through with visions of racism and white supremacy versus the non-whites. And, and you see that you see, in fact, the courts talking about this in what are known as the insular cases where they where they explicitly say, well, hold on, we we, we, we don't want to jeopardize what, what they and they and they quote Chief Justice John Marshall, the white, uh, sorry, the American empire, because we, we don't want to bring in these people too quickly now because <laughs> that could that could really distort uh, our efforts at, at maintaining this this white Anglo empire. So Bell's going to look at that and go, okay, here's a clear-cut case of the ways in which people are being racially subordinated, exploited, and so oppressed. And then he'll look at, for example, slave codes and say, yep, same sorts of things, even though this is now happening on the mainland. Then he'll look at the complete failure of Reconstruction, and he'll quote a historian like C. Van Woodward who says, yeah, it ends up that white Southerners and white Northerners, they, they reconcile at the cost of black people. Yeah. So then you get you get Jim and Jane Crow. And so Bell looks at that and he's like, oh, yeah, second class citizenship. You're clearly being subordinated by law. You're being exploited. You're being oppressed. And, and laws enabling all this to happen. Exactly. He would talk similarly about how women were in a subordinated place because they didn't have the vote until 1920s, et cetera. So those are the examples of the ways that Bell's thinking through how you get modes of, of subordination, modes of oppression. But because Bell thinks that way, Bell's also going to ask questions like this. What are the distinctive ways in which poor whites historically have been subordinated, have been exploited, have been oppressed? And he time and again will note that, and, and he's drawing on people like um, Morgan and Ben Woodward. He's going to say, when we look at the histories or um, uh, Winthrop Jordan, he says, when we look at U.S. history, one of the things we find is the elite class, a more of a kind of aristocracy. It's not quite an aristocracy, but very close to that. The, plut the plutocrats, as I like to call them, they will they will dangle whiteness as a way of forming a cross class solidarity. Hmm. But the whole time they're still promoting laws and and visions of the United States that overwhelmingly oppress and exploit poor whites. But they're saying things like. Well, be careful because the real threat are these these mm -hmm. Chinese people. They're going to come mm -hmm. and take your jobs. Or mm -hmm. it's it's these black people that are always just asking for handouts. And you're like. But what about all the bailouts that go to 
corporate groups that go – what about right. all the, the subsidies that go right. to, to, to these massive farms that have displaced family farms, et cetera, et cetera? Bell's going to look at them and say, oh, wait, these mm -hmm. people are being subordinated. They're mm -hmm. being exploited, et cetera. Yeah. So for Bell, it's more complicated than saying, well, it's just whites subordinating non-whites. Right. He's going to say, well, if I'm looking at the macro structure, yes, I see how through laws and through habits and patterns of relating, that's going to generally hold. But I mm -hmm. also see that that's happening in terms of material conditions. It's going to hit even white people. And so he'll talk mm -hmm. about hierarchies within racial categories. Hmm. So he'll talk uh -huh. about how, for example, yeah, if, if you're middle class black, you won't experience some of the same forms of, 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 of racism and exploitation as if you're poor black. But it, but it, that none of that's going to keep you from being in a car, driving in a car, and right. then a police officer pulls you over because a police officer profiles yeah. you, and who knows where that's going to go. Right. You still look black when you're driving. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And, and can I say one more thing? Yeah, you go wanna, ahead, go ahead. Yeah. So I think one of the reasons this ends up being so important is because those general ideas then get picked up by Crenshaw, who, who in mm. 89 says, okay, we're not paying enough attention to the ways in which there are forms of gendered racism and mm. the ways in which law will presume a certain gender of a person and then make it so that Certain forms of exploitation, for example, just can't get recognized in a court because you'll say, okay, either you're saying that this is discrimination according to gender or it's discrimination according to race. And so there are cases that, that, that Crenshaw gives in her, in her, uh, her first piece, Demarcating, um, again, in 1989, where she says, well, wait, there are cases where there are black women who are saying, because we are black women, so women and black, we're experiencing unique forms of discrimination in the workplace, distinct forms of exploitation, dis dis distinct forms of subordination. And at the time, she highlights how these how the laws just couldn't deal with it. They're like, okay, so either all women at the workplace are being subordinated because they're women, or everybody that's black is being subordinated. She's like, well, the black males aren't being subordinated in the ways that we are, yeah. and the white women aren't being subordinated in the ways that we are. We're talking about black women being subordinated. Yeah. And there was just no legal category to account for those modes of subordination. Mm -hmm. So Crenshaw ends up championing an idea about intersectionality because she's right. saying, well, look, the ways in which we can get subordinated can be very complicated. Yeah. So it could be that accent discrimination is going to come. It could mm -hmm. be that pigmentation is going to come. It could be that ability is going to come into play. It, it could be um, questions about immigration, et cetera, et cetera. So mm -hmm. she's saying, let's, let's open up the vista and take in more of mm -hmm. what's going to be relevant in any particular place. And last point on this, She's going to note that this can be different from one region to the next. Oh, so, yeah. what what it would look like, for example, for somebody that's um that that's from say Tennessee, that's going to have a, a thick Southern accent, to go to Manhattan, yeah, and 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 try to like, there's just no way if you have if you have an accent from pretty much anywhere in Tennessee, you go to Manhattan, people are going to look at you and be like, oh yeah, you're you're like this upper class upper class white folks. They're going to be like, nope. No, you're clearly from the South. And then racist, frankly, ideas, elitist ideas about the North being superior to the South come yes. into play, even in terms of white, white on white relationships. Yep. So that's the sort of thing that Crenshaw is opening up. She's saying, if we're going to love our neighbors, we're going to care for them. We have to pay this level of attention to the particular differences. Yes, Nathan, for helpful. So in, in essence, I hear you saying to that, to that sort of trope or that, that challenge to say, hey, the CRT divides the world into oppressor and oppressed, and that's, it's more complicated than that. When you're actually saying, no, CRT helps us see the ways that laws have divided the world into subordinated and, you know, subordinator, right? right. So, so these, these categories exist. CRT didn't invent them. Correct. They exist. CRT helps us see them. Correct. So that, and I love what you said there at the end, uh, quoting Crenshaw, this allows us to love our neighbor better. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> because we right. can see more clearly what their experience is like. Yeah. You know, through, exactly. through that whole exactly. thing. So that, that's brilliant. Um, so maybe uh, another challenge that I sometimes hear, maybe just see how you would address this. Um, one of the things I've heard uh, about CRT is like, th- this is a worldview. Um, and so as a worldview, it, it, it is a challenge to the gospel because the gospel is also a worldview. And so CRT uh, is incompatible with the gospel because it makes these truth claims that un- undermine or contradict uh, Christianity. And so, you know, CRT is essentially like an atheistic worldview and it denies, you know, creation or redemption and, you know, all of that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So what, what would you say to that kind of uh, challenge oh, to CRT? So, so I, I tend to historicize quite a bit. As y'all could tell, it's good. <laughs> I love had, it. I'm here we for had it. Two, no, that, two podcasts for it's it. So, right? It's so helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so I'll say this, you, we got to ask questions about when did Christians start talking about worldviews? Come we on, gotta ask, this is a when, good question. There we go. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then we got to ask questions about which segments of the church talk most about worldviews. And we got to ask, what are worldviews supposed to be doing? And, 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 and here's an important thing. They're discourses. These are yes. discourses. Mm-hmm. So you don't find, for example, Augustine talking about worldviews. He's going to talk about philosophies, and he's going to talk about Christianity as a philosophy, and he might talk about Stoicism as a philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But even as he's doing that, He's going to have this idea that we're not dealing with simply these holistic systems of thought. Right. See, si- the idea of a system is a distinctively enlightenment construction. Yeah, He's going to say, okay, yeah, no, there, there are these broader philosophies, which are for him connected to ways of life. Pierre Hadot is so good on this. Philosophy as a way of life is, is one of his most important books. So th- 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 there are claims about reality, yes, but, but even though they're connected, there are ways of, of, of separating them. So you can say, okay, yeah, no, we're endorsing this, but oh, hold on, that, that, that seems off. But then there are, are broader questions about practice and how should we be living. Um, so I, I'm saying this because when I when I encountered worldview discourse, for example, at a place like Grove City College, my, one of my alma maters, I found that that there was this there was this triumphalism that was connected to worldview discourse. There was a there was a way of dis, of, of of disconnecting, for example, the kind of nuanced evaluation that I would see in the medievals, whether it's somebody like uh, Augustine. Boethius, uh, Aquinas, Bonaventure, in terms of how they're engaging a wide range of views for something instead like this, like here's a general presentation of postmodernism, Marxism, whatever it's going to be. Here are these five or six ideas, and we're just going to deal with those ideas. Hmm. And we're just going to say, are they true? Are they false? Etc. But I remember thinking, where is any of the history? Like, it, it's, it's, it's all a historical vacuum. Yeah. And I was always concerned about the ways in which there was there were forms of intuition pumping that were going on. When I'm like, well, I I mean, I don't know if this is an accurate presentation of these people. We're mm-hmm. not really engaging primary text anymore. It's just these big umbrella terms. So one of the reasons I'm I'm saying all this is because I think that for many in your audience, they're they're trained into worldview discourses to see things as entire unified systems, and it's often a some a some zero game. Either it's it's wholly connected to the gospel or it's completely opposed to the gospel. And what I want to say is that's just not the way that historically most Christians have been thinking about yeah. a whole range of truth claims and a whole range yeah. of disciplines and, and bodies of knowledge, etc. They're going to mm. say, okay, we're sure that you have things that are good, right, true, and beautiful in what you're believing, and we need to learn. So uh, we don't want to learn those things. They're kind of like, yeah. as we talked about before, they're, they're, that's going to be philosophical water. It's going to be good and nourishing. Yeah. Now we, we we want we want to receive that, and then as we engage in distinctively Christian reflections, 
We're going to see it hit Christ, mm-hmm. as it were, and, and be transformed into theological wine. But now mm-hmm. we're going to do this slow and steady work of, of working through it. So uh, just uh, one example, Aristotle, for example, claims that, that what you might think of as creation, it's eternal. Yeah. Aquinas completely rejects it. He's like, no, no, no. Creation is ex nihilo. It comes into existence at a certain time, etc. But he can say all that and then say, okay, but Aristotle, you got some great ideas about habits, virtues, how human beings act, etc. And then there are going to be parts of Aristotle's ideas about laws, for example, and Aquinas is like, eh, no, that doesn't work for various reasons. So he's engaging Aristotle on all sorts of particular claims, and he's doing a nuanced commentary on Aristotle. So that he knows, yep, this is what he says. Hmm. This is what he believes, here are the reasons why, etc. Most of the people that are talking about CRT as a worldview, then don't, they don't realize that CRTers consistently don't talk about CRT as a worldview, for example. They also say you can't just look at a handful of claims because one of the most important <laughs> common ground beliefs among CRTers is we have to engage in historical analysis. So you have to ask, why would somebody be championing these views at these times? How are they situated in broader social patterns of meaning, etc.? So when I hear, okay, well, CRT is just this worldview that's opposed to the gospel. I'm already going, hold on, why have we jettisoned a whole host of historic ways of Christians engaging this? Why is it that there's so much money, frankly, and all these worldview worldview mantras and the worldview camps and places like Colorado, et cetera, et cetera. So I, <laughs> I already become quite concerned about some of that. Hmm. But but again, then when I get to the specifics of CRT, I find them saying, well look, we're we're not a monolith. We're we're a variegated yeah. movement. And we disagree on a whole host of things. Now, yes, are there some common points? Like, we're going to stress historical analysis. Yes, we're going to stress race consciousness. Yes. But they don't even agree on what what racism is, for example. They have different definitions, and and some of them are, in fact, incompatible. So I would say, when we're looking at CRT, we need to ask, okay, what does any given CRT scholar say? Because as as I stress in in part one— CRT is this movement that has various traditions, and within those traditions, there are varying competing theories. So the traditions <laughs> compete, the theories yeah, compete. Yeah. There's a lot of diversity all mm. the way down. And I tried to highlight that even in my earlier comments about how Marxism does and doesn't relate to CRT. So how mm. you'd have to relate differently if you're reading Crenshaw than if you're reading Bell. But now I want to say one more thing, and I want to bring this home to the Christians. Uh, when I hear the gospel without any clarification, I start getting nervous. Because for some people, the gospel means four words I've heard a Southern Baptist say, Jesus in my place. Okay. What all does that even mean? Now, a whole lot of, like, if that's all you have, you don't know. Yeah, yeah. But, but what, what, what you're presuming in Christian circles is they're like, oh, well, something like vicarious atonement, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Okay, so I want to say this. Does Jesus, it, is it the case that the Father sends the Son to die for sinners and that the Son is raised by the power of the Spirit, and the Father and the Son send the Spirit to apply redemption. Yes. Two sinners. Yes. Are our sins forgiven because of the work of Christ? Oh, you better believe it. But the blood of Christ doesn't just atone for sin. Christ's work is cosmic. Come on, Nathan. Right? Christ is redeeming the entire cosmos from the realities of the curse, from the realities of the fall. And those include, for example, the deterioration. Of creation, the ways in which an, uh, non-human animals, to use the medieval phrase, are experiencing things. So, they, as Paul says in Romans eight, all creation is groaning. But yes. even more, even even proponents of racialized chattel slavery, like James Henley Thornwell, said, "Oh, Christ, yeah, no, no, Christ is a liberator. Christ is going to bring an end to all forms of oppression 
all forms of slavery. The question for them was when. Mm. So they are, have this already not yet eschatology. Mm-hmm. Okay, any good Christian should have that, but the question always ends up being, well, how do we see the already and the not yet? Mm-hmm. So somebody like Thornhill is going to say, oh yeah, Christ is Christ the greater Moses. He's the greater mm-hmm. liberator. He's going to put an end to all these forms of slavery. Just not right now. <laughs> like his his ultimate work is going to be accomplished later. So right yeah, now, no, no, yeah. no, be careful because if you engage too much of this, you're going to fall into what he, he's already calling it communism. Back at the time, he's terrified about communism. And this is back in the 1850s. Fascinating. So some of these tropes just keep on wow. coming back. Wow. So yeah. it's, I, I say this because for some, for some, they don't even see that part of the good news of the gospel is that Christ is the greater liberator than Moses. Yeah. Christ is the one who identifies with the oppressed and the exploited. Think about Matthew 23. And mm-hmm. he's also bringing an end to all modes of exploitation and oppression. Yes. All of them. Mm-hmm. So Christians should be celebrating that. And then one of the reasons why the kingdom, when you look at, for example, Acts 6, if you trace from Acts 1 to Acts 6, one of the things that you see is a mark of the church is this uh, the sharing and addressing of all the needs of widows and orphans in particular. Yes. Making sure that the kingdom is a place of mercy, making sure that the kingdom is, is a place where those that are being exploited, those that are being marginalized are going to be welcomed, they're going to have their needs addressed, because it's 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 a sign of the, the greater things to come. And that's always been true of the people of God. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes now, for those that see the gospel in a hyper-individualistic, it's just me and Jesus, and it's just about my sins, and how Jesus saved me from my sins, and I don't need to be engaged in social social concerns— like that vision of the church and that mark of the church just doesn't even hold for them. So hmm. my point is not that CRTers get all this, they understand all this, they get this all right. But you should know some of them are deeply committed Christians mm-hmm. who because they're trying to promote justice and mercy for widows and orphans and they're looking at the racial caste system in the United States, they're looking at this history, they're asking why are people, for example, in the borders being treated like animals and being put up in cages and these sorts of things. Like, okay, well, what it would be to be a faithful Christian promoting mm-hmm. justice and mercy, trying to care for the least of these, yes. is going to require being race conscious, it's going to require thinking about laws, it's going to require certain forms of activism. That doesn't mean that they give up talking about Jesus as one who's died in your place, Jesus one who saves you from your sin. No, they're talking about that, and because yes. they have a, a more capacious vision of the gospel. Yes, Nathan. Wow. All right. So, uh, like... Some- I think that's a good answer to that question. Um, <laughs> but I, I think there's a uh, A minus. No, I'm just kidding. Um, we'll be right back. The Gravity Podcast is sponsored by the Gravity Formation Course, our 12 month cohort based training in practical spiritual formation, where you'll learn how to notice how God is already at work in your life so you can participate more fully in the life that God shares with us. It is a discipleship process that goes beyond just gaining more knowledge and trying out some new practices. In the Gravity Formation course, we go below the surface of our lives so that we can notice and name our deepest desires in God's presence and to discern how God is at work in those desires to lead us toward holistic flourishing, more transformation, more life, more joy, more love. We've trained hundreds of people from all over the world in this formation framework, and it's helped many people to have a sense of God at work in their lives and learn to be more at home in God's love. If you'd like to learn more, go to gravitycommons.com slash formation. Let's get back to the show. This actually hints on, this hits on why this feels so threatening to certain Mm. Christians, I think. Right? Because mm-hmm. there is this myth that, well, like you said it, like 
where do we get the idea that the gospel is a worldview? What is a worldview? How does that work? How does the discourse work? You know, that, that kind of a thing. And I think what, what CRT ends up, because of its historical perspective, what I'm learning from you right now, is that CRT, uh, because it has this historical perspective, it, it engages with the gospel in ways that theologians have always engaged with the gospel from their situatedness, you know, from the, the philosophies and the, the, the ways that they kind of see the world. They have to engage the gospel from that place. And I think one of the things that CRT feels so threatening, uh, uh, one of the ways that CRT feels threatening to certain Christians is that it challenges the notion that there is some sort of pure kernel of the gospel, some sort of like collection of knowledge that is like unaffected by culture that we can somehow get our hands around. Um, because CRT seems to say like, no, there's, there's, that, there's no such thing as sort of uh, contextless knowledge, right? Right. So anyway, that, that just struck me as maybe that's one of the reasons that this feels so threatening to people. I think so. May I add a little bit to that? Sure. So if you read somebody like Augustine, he's going to stress fallibilism. He's going to say, all of us are historically situated social creatures, linguistically bound, which means we're going to be, I'm going to use C.S. Lewis. He talks about this in his, his, his preface or, yeah, it's a preface to um, Athanasius's On the Incarnation. He says, we're all part of an age, which means we can see some things well, better than other people, and then we're going to see some things poorly. It's, it's a very Augustinian note. They're stressing we're all perspectival. We all see from a particular place, given a certain language, given a certain history, et cetera, et cetera. So for somebody like Augustine, somebody like C.S. Lewis, what does C.S. Lewis say? Therefore, we need to be reading old books to help us to better evaluate our place and time. You find similar ideas with Augustine. Okay, hold on. Let me, let me see something from this perspective. And oh, wow, look, that's going to change how I appreciate things. So for Augustine, for example, he's navigating two cultures. He's navigating both being Roman in an important sense, but also being Berber from his mom's side. So the Berbers are colonized. And you see this working itself out in so many of Augustine's texts where he has this, this dualistic mode. And I, and I don't mean dualistic in a, in a nasty sense. It's like, well, I, I know what it is to be a part of these colonized people, but I also know what it is to be a member of this empire and to be a, connect as, as being Roman. So he's, he's, he's fluctuating at times. Uh, when you read him, you can see where he's, he's, he's doing more to endorse certain Roman perspectives. And then there are times he's going to resist those and say, no, 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 hold on. I know what, the, what these indigenous Berbers people are, are seeing and they're spot on. So, nope, I, I can't go with you with you all here. I, I'm, I'm highlighting this because even somebody like Herman Bavink, okay, so this Dutch Reformed theologian, is going to say when he reads when he reads the Mosaic Covenant, he says, quote, it's clear this was written from the perspective of the oppressed. He's going to say, yeah, look at the concerns for the ways in which certain people are exploited. Look at the concerns for widows and orphans. Look at how many times God's going to say, because I took you out of slavery, X, Y, and Z follow. It's like, yeah, that's only going to make sense if you're thinking about what it is to be part of this oppressed group. Mm. So, so some of the some of the critical race theorists are going to say there is no view from nowhere. Nobody can access, as it were, this neutral perspective. What we have available to us are a whole range of perspectives on an, an event, and what we're trying to do is have the most accurate take on it. So we have to listen to these various groups. There's no, now here's what they're meaning, there's no objective truth in the sense that here's this view from nowhere and all you have to do is have some happy thoughts and then poof, you get to it. They're like, no, no, right, no, that, right. that doesn't work. We're yeah. all socially, historically situated, linguistically limited sorts of creatures. If I may just give you one example, mm. like even how language can limit. In Spanish, we have, we have two words for talking about knowing. So we can talk about sober 
and we can talk about conocer. So saber is, is a way of like, I know propositions, something like that. Conocer has to do with familiarity. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I know her or him in the sense I have this kind of relationship to, to that person. Hmm. And in English, well, we just have, oh yeah, I know, I know this and I know her and I know him. We don't have that, that same kind of linguistic range that enables you to see things. So oftentimes you have to get into the nuance of saying, wait, what do you mean by no? Like Lewis talks about with, with four loves, for example, mm-hmm. the difference in, in Greek. So, so this is something that, that CRTs are also going to be talking about. Like, okay, how does our language help us to see things well? How does it not? Mm-hmm. What would happen if we inhabited another language? What could we see? What, what, what would we mean? What would we mean? Still not see. Yeah. Um, but that idea is so counter to the enlightenment idea that there's just this objective truth that's readily available to everybody, et cetera, et cetera. So I think for some for some Christians, what what they need to see is that historically, Christians have been talking about us, have been talking about human beings as limited, finite creatures that are perspectively bound. It's very similar to what you get with CRT. That's what some of the the standpoint epistemology is about. What's it like to see things from this perspective versus seeing things from that perspective? How can we all help one another see things rightly? And then my last point on this would be, even somebody like Plato, read his Republic, he's going to say, if you inhabit a certain perspective, when you're in the cave, you think that the firelight up against the wall is the real deal. You think that's real light. And then somebody drags you out and you get to the top of the cave and you're like, oh, my eyes are burning and oh my goodness, what's all this that I'm seeing? Mm. I stress that example because so many of the same people, they're going to say, no, no, no. There isn't, there, isn't, um, there isn't this perspectival nature of thinking, are often the ones that are going to be championing things like classical Christian schools, um, you know, homeschool education, which is going to be connected to championing things like the, the Western canon and people like Plato. And there are times when like, y'all, if you just read these folks more carefully, they're yeah. saying similar things. That idea about the cave is very similar to a Gramscian idea about hegemony mm-hmm. and how once you get into a certain social location, you might not see a whole lot of what's going on. Mm. Yeah. So – it doesn't challenge the gospel per se. It challenges an enlightenment view of knowledge. It challenges an epistemology. Yep. Yeah. Nathan, I the, the Enneagram 3 in me is kind of going berserk because I hear all of this and I'm like, okay, what am I going to do? Like that that's what happens in my heart, right? And and mm-hmm. what I hear you kind of saying is, you know, we hear from CS Lewis like read read older books and make sure that we're more grounded yeah. and all that kind of stuff. I also hear you saying have conversations with people. Like really talk, engage in conversations whether it's with your spouse or your friend or your kids. Um mm-hmm. maybe read read history books that are not whitey white white books <laughs> you know like yes. that type of thing what else would you add for for our listeners who are kind of like okay my imagination has grown i'm learning i'm seeing yeah. i'm i'm growing but but now what great question so here i'm going to champion something that i do get from uh charles lawrence III, who's a crt or one of the founders he stresses being a people of what he calls the book and he says what i mean by that is you're constantly learning through reading, listening to podcasts, dialogue with people, which are also constantly trying to promote justice. Now, I would add as a Christian, justice and mercy as you're trying to be faithful to God. Because yes. you always see this, you, you see justice and mercy paired all the time throughout the Old New Testament. I think one of the problems that got, has gone on in some of the um, race-conscious discourse in the church is that mercy's dropped out, which is a big, big problem. Hmm. Um, and, and visions of, of justice are just too thin. More on that another time, perhaps. But I'd say, okay, so there needs to be the steady engagement of, of learning and acting. 
learning and acting, learning and acting, which for Christians, that should make so much sense because like, yep, I need to hear the word and then I need to be a doer of the word. Yeah. Similar thing to what, what Lawrence is getting at. But now I want to talk about doing. I think many evangelicals slash confessional folks, they still think in a very individualistic mode, even as they're hearing what we're saying now and they're thinking about broader social realities. Some of the questions about, well, what can I do? There's a failure to recognize, for example, how limited any one person's action is going to be. Mm. Because we're talking about broader societal patterns and structures and power in places that are going to be very hard to dislodge. Mm -hmm. Yes. But also then want to say, okay, if we're not just thinking in a hyper-individualistic way, and we are going to say, how, how about we think better than that, but of course still giving due diligence to individuals, we need to talk about spheres of influence. So here's what I mean. We need to ask, what are the sorts of things that I can be doing in terms of relationships with certain friends, certain family members, places where I work, mm -hmm. places of worship? So now notice I've gone from uh, smaller communities and, and, and like familial or friendship relationships to institutions I'm a part of, workplace institution, um, a, a congregation or a parish that I'm a part of. And then we ask, okay, let's think about just the congregation and parishes. What are they connected to? What's the... What's the, the diocese, the presbytery? What's the, if it's, if it's congregationalist mode? Okay, are, are we in any coalitions, for example, or any conventions? Okay, what are the histories and the patterns of relating there? If I'm, I'm thinking especially about Christians, then I'm also asking, okay, where do our ministers go for to, to get seminary training? Hmm. What teaching happens there? What are the hiring practices there? Who gets invited to talk at those places? How are they spending their money? Then I can ask, okay, let me zoom back out again. I'm living in Wheaton. What are the, what are the racist practices that exist at the township slash the city level? Am I involved in things like town hall meetings or am I not? Then I can ask questions like, okay, Am I paying attention to zoning patterns and who's being encouraged to live here and who's not being encouraged to live here? Am I paying attention to school questions about curricula? Am, am I asking, like, what are we reading? What are the kids learning? Even if I'm in a place that says, like, oh, yeah, we're doing dual language programs. It's going to be Spanish and English. Okay, but is it a presentation of Spanish that goes like this? We don't really care too much about Latinos and Latinas. But what we do want is for you, oh, white people, to be able to learn Spanish because, oh, the power that will come if you know another language and you can make so much money and it's going to help you to get into college, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that's not a Christian way of thinking about these things. Now, I know that not every public school system, for example, is going to endorse distinctly Christian ways of thinking about it. But I want to be stressing. No, no, we learn languages because we want to love our neighbors well. We want to exercise hospitality. We want to receive from them too. It's not just us going and giving. We know that they have good right. We have they have things that are good, right, true, and beautiful to give to us. And we want to be able to receive what they have to give. So we can ask such questions about even things like these these dual language programs. And then I zoom out and I say, okay, what's happened at the state level? I'm in Illinois. <laughs> it's, it's a quagmire. All sorts of of wonkiness going on. Um, but one of the things I did like, for example, and something that I can applaud, I can applaud my, my, my state government for doing is they, they kept stressing the need to wear masks as mm -hmm. a way of caring for neighbor, mm -hmm. caring for the most vulnerable. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no, that's right. Christians need to care about how something like COVID-19 is going to impact the, the elderly. We need to care about how um, medical supplies are being distributed. So I was really pleased to see that in Illinois, they uh, several people made sure that those areas that are part of lower income that are lower income communities did have access pretty early on 
to vaccines. Like, okay, great. But then I'm also noticing, hold on a second. Now there are these places that through redlining practices are still not getting access to vaccines. How can we resist and remediate that? And then, you know, zooming out even further, we get the, the, the big federal government in the United States. And we can ask questions like, what are the ways in which the federal government is or is not resisting and remediating forms of, of, of white supremacy? So, for example, those, those nasty racist laws that we talked about in the Marshall Trilogy, they're still in the books. The economic exploitation and subordination of Puerto Rico is still there. Last I knew, over 45% of Puerto Ricans on the island are in poverty. This is happening in real time. Now, not everybody, for example, is going to be called to promote race-conscious justice and mercy for mi gente en Boricua in the same way that perhaps I will be. But we'd also need to see what might not be helpful at all is sending missionaries down there. <laughs> and, 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 and like teams are going to come and, and, and quickly fix some houses and things like this. No, no, no. It gets, it gets far more complicated because if groups go and do that, sometimes what happens is the townships slash the, the, the cities, et cetera, they're like, oh, well, we're expecting these other people are going to take care of those problems. So eh, we're not going to put in funds. We're not going to take care of these things. We're going to go do something else. So it all gets to be highly complicated when we're thinking about how broader social patterns of, of relating are up and running. But let me, let me summarize again then. That means we're constantly reading and thinking and learning about all these different spheres of influence. And then we're asking, okay, Lord, how can I be salt and light? How can I receive and give in terms of my friendships, family, church, broader church denominations? Okay, town. Okay, state. Okay, broader government. And then last point is this. I think, especially in the United States, it is tremendously important for Christians to listen to the voices of the global church. Listen to the voices of the global church. So my students are routinely shocked when I, when I provide them primary sources that show how back in the 19th century, for example, Christians in places like Latin America, all throughout Latin America, were saying, watch out for the white colossus that's trying to gobble up places like Mexico, Cuba, Puerto Rico, etc., like, oh my goodness, they knew about this? Mm-hmm, they did know about this. And they were often writing to, for example, the African Methodist Episcopal denomination, saying like, hey, how can we have modes of solidarity because we see, we see that you all are catching hell, we're catching hell, how do we work through this? And in and, and places like um, El Salvador, for example, you had Roman Catholics who were consistently saying that the practices, the economic exploitation that the United States is bearing down on us is devastating. The church here. It's devastating Christians and non-Christians here. So if they were saying that back in the 70s, they continue to say it now, but a lot of Christians in the United States just don't even listen to these voices. And if we're honest, this question about Marxism resurfaces here. Because the moment you start to say, but look, there are these Latinos and Latinas in places like El Salvador and Honduras, and they're talking about how they're catching hell because of these modes of exploitation and oppression. What happens? Well, that's that liberation theology. That's that stuff that's shot through with Marxism. They don't really know what they're talking about. They're just looking for handouts, et cetera, et cetera. All these racist ideas and all these fear-mongering tactics that we see now being used against CRT, they come right back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Nathan, I we are uh, against the clock here, and I'm— um, overwhelmed with gratitude and thankfulness, yeah. which is the same thing. I'm overwhelmed with both all the words that <laughs> all the words that describe both, being, both things that mean the same thing. All, all things that describe <laughs> being appreciative of yeah. the amount of work and time you've given us to yes. help us navigate this. And so, yes. um, where I know you have a blog, and I know there's uh, 
and I know you teach at Wheaton. So this is your chance to plug this uh, and tell yeah. people to come learn from you at Wheaton and also tell us about your blog. Yeah, so um, my, my blog's at my, uh, my website. So it's first name, Nathan, last name, Cartagena, C-A-R-T-A-G-E-N-A dot uh, com. And I'm going to get back to to writing blogs. It's been it's been a wild time because I'm trying to revamp one of my classes, and it just yeah, just takes a lot of time. So I haven't haven't uh, been able to blog since about February, but I'm getting back to that soon. And then I'm on Twitter um, at Mestizo Meditations, and I try to share uh, images of primary text or quotations throughout the day. They're going to be relevant for for people trying to to think uh, think well about how to live uh, live life in a godly way. And then um, the last, the last thing I, I, I want to make sure I stress is, it's it's so important that we ask ourselves this question: How, as we're trying to understand different movements, they're going to have things we agree with and disagree with. For example, as much as I've learned from Charles Lawrence III, there are times where he does say things about certain views regarding sexuality. I'm like, nope, I disagree. And there are going to be times where he's like, well, if you disagree, I'm not sure how much collaboration we could have. It's like, okay, I understand that. But somebody like Crenshaw doesn't hold the same view. Ian Haney Lopez doesn't hold the same view. So there's, there's all these differences, which has been a common theme. But I'm, I, I note those differences because I'm asking, how do I love my neighbors as I'm learning from them? How do I make sure I represent them justly in my effort to be salt and light, in my effort to treat them well? Hmm. And I, I think that the church has so much repenting to do, especially about CRT, but not just CRT, because rather than there being a robust effort to love our neighbors well, to understand them well, for example, to even invite critical race theorists to talk about critical race theory on their own terms, it doesn't happen. It's like, well, who's somebody else that, that says they understand CRT and you give us the representation and then off we go. I, I think there's going to be a need for some serious repenting across denominational lines because we have failed to love our CRT neighbors, whether they're Christians like somebody like um, Amani Perry, or they're not. Hmm. Yeah. Nathan, thank you again. Bless thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. Yeah, great to have you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful, we'd love it if you tell your friends about it. Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Joining our Gravity community is free. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sternke edits and mixes the podcast, and you can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the start record button. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. 
Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.